Episode 8. Hold. This episode is brought to you by stubbornness. Just stick with it. Frederick III, the Elector of Saxony. I mentioned him earlier. He's the one who was responsible for protecting Luther to a massive extent throughout the whole ordeal that was about to unfold. And at this stage, immediately after Luther's 95 Theses and his uh, meeting the Augustinian group in Heidelberg, at this moment, Frederick was able to protect Luther from having to go to Rome. He'd been called to Rome and at this stage nobody had officially labeled luther a heretic so while that had not happened frederick was able to ward off the attacks by both the imperial and the papal authorities both the temporal and the spiritual authority structures the emperor maximilian the first he was fast approaching the end of of what would be a 30 something year reign and he wrote to the pope about luther at this stage he said that together they must put a stop to, quote, the most perilous attack of Martin Luther on indulgences, lest not only the people, but ever the princes be seduced, end quote. So you can see here the fear of exposure to Martin Luther's ideas within the temporal power complex. What if one of the prince electors, say Frederick, were to embrace these reforms? Now, Frederick, he was managing to rearrange the Inquisition of Luther so that he would not have to go to Rome, but he would only have to go to Augsburg in Bavaria, where the Diet of Augsburg was going to be held. The papal legate, who was sent from Rome to question Luther, he was a cardinal, and his name was Thomas Cajetan. He was an Italian cardinal and philosopher, and he came up to Augsburg for the Diet and to question Luther thereafter in an effort to make him recant. Cajetan was under orders to reconcile Luther to the church if he recanted. Otherwise, if he did not, he was to force Luther back to Rome. But this is where the political context it gets a little bit tricky, because before Cajetan and Luther's meeting, the Diet of Augsburg, the imperial diet, was held. And much of the diet, it was concentrated on a real rumbling, a real stirring amongst the German princes. This was the imperial diet of the Holy Roman Empire, so concerned largely the the territory that is today's Germany. And the German princes, the prince-electors, they were stirring against the Italian weight of influence within both the temporal and the spiritual power structures. So whenever they had one of these diets, they would thereafter issue an edict And the Edict of Augsburg from this year, 1518, part of it read like this, quote, These sons of Nimrod, which I've just had to rest on that for a moment because I love the insult, sons of Nimrod. And the sons of Nimrod, by the way, are the Italian clergy. These sons of Nimrod grab cloisters, abbeys, and parish churches. And they leave these churches without pastors, all the people without shepherds. In cases before the ecclesiastical courts, the Roman church smiles on both sides for a little palm grease. 
German money, in violation of nature, flies over the Alps. The pastors given to us are shepherds, only in name. End quote. Does that sound familiar? It's very similar to the things that Martin Luther was saying, and a lot of what Luther was saying was nothing new. People had been railing against corruption in the church for many years. Luther did it on an, a theological level, but there were many rumblings at a socio-political and economic levels as well. So this Italian cardinal, Cajetan, he had been dealing with all of this in the lead-up to his inquiry of Luther. Luther, when he came into the room to meet Cajetan, he prostrated himself the first day they met. And he prostrated himself before the cardinal with humility and deference. Cajetan ordered him to recant, and Luther stated that he had not come all the way to Augsburg to do something he could have done at home. So he was still showing deference to the authority of the church, but he was sticking by his guns. They debated theology over the next few days, and the merit system of indulgences. They tangled in ever-heated discussions, until... At one point, Luther exclaimed that the Pope abused Scripture, and he was referring to the arguments that Cajetan was making. Luther felt he wasn't using Scripture to actually argue against Luther. He was merely asking him to recant. And so Luther denied the Pope's authority over Scripture, and he did this to the face of the person that represented the all-powerful Pope. In saying that the Pope was not above Scripture, he once again stood up to the utmost authority of the day. Cajetan, he demanded again that Luther recant, and again Luther refused. And as I said, he felt he was only being given the opportunity to recant and not to actually debate theology. He wrote home to say that Cajetan was as suited to dealing with this case as a donkey was suited to playing a harp. And this was a, a ridicule that it gave birth to an image that would become quite prevalent over the next few years. An image of an ass playing a harp. That would come to be associated with standing up to the Catholic Church and the authority and the presumed infallibility of the Catholic Church. So these images would start being spread across Europe of an ass playing a harp basically becoming synonymous with the churches flailing against this rebel, Martin Luther. Anyway, it became clear that Luther would be arrested and forced to Rome. He was going to be called a heretic, and that meant he would likely be burnt at the stake. Fortunately for him, though, he had enough good friends and supporters in Augsburg that by the cover of night, he managed to flee and he started making his way back to the protective territories of Frederick III. Frederick was now in a pretty tight spot. The church was rumbling, and it was very pissed off. The emperor was keen to see it all be resolved. The Diet of Augsburg and the, the meeting with Cajetan had not sort of set to uh, free Luther from the prospect of being burnt as a heretic, and suddenly Frederick was protecting this person. So he was sent a letter by Rome, and he was ordered to banish Luther. At this stage, by the way, Luther, he had also been released from his vows to be a monk, so he wasn't officially a monk anymore. And once again, Frederick was ordered to send him to Rome. Luther was actually shown this letter by Frederick, and 
he um, wrote a version of events from his perspective to respond to the letter. So he wanted to show Frederick how the meeting with Cajetan went from his perspective. And this was basically an appeal against the Pope. The thing is about this is that a previous Pope, years before, Julius II, had decreed that any appeal without papal consent was automatic heresy. So technically, Luther, when he came out with this this appeal against the letter that had been sent to Frederick, he gave it to the printer and he basically gave conditions and said he ordered it not to be printed until the point where Luther was truly labelled a heretic. But the printer ignored this and he ended up printing it and disseminating it around Europe. So Luther hadn't meant for this appeal to uh, go out, but it had. He had suddenly appealed without papal consent. So technically, whether he liked it or not, or whether he felt in control of it or not, Martin Luther was now a heretic. But still, nobody officially proclaimed it, and this allowed Frederick to still protect Luther. It's a bit difficult as well for us to imagine because we think of these things in terms of modern communication and the speed that messages can cross. But of course, at that stage, the fastest anything could go was the speed of a horse. So it gave them time to be able to just keep as quiet as they could. And uh, he was able to protect Luther continually that way. But at one stage, Frederick he is said to have, so he wrote one letter to Rome on behalf of Luther. In the whole uh, course of this, Frederick, he never became a Protestant. He remained a Catholic and he uh, never actually spoke to Luther directly. He would always go through an intermediary who was this person, Stolpitz, that I mentioned earlier, who would become very important for Luther. And um, it's only once that Frederick wrote a letter to Rome on behalf of Luther. And in this letter, he said, quote, He should be showed in what respect he is a heretic and not condemned in advance, end quote. So this is a little bit of an insight into Frederick's character and demeanor. He was said to be a Renaissance man. At his core, he looked at things as human and he looked at the human aspects of things. And, um, This is just one of those circumstances that allowed Luther to survive where so many heretics before him had perished. He was really just a pain in the ass. And Frederick, through this, he was able to kind of just keep him out of Rome, try not to talk about it too much. But you think, why and how did the Pope actually allow this? And this is where the political schemings and wheelings and dealings and the interconnection between the temporal and the spiritual authority realms, this is where that comes into it. The Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, he by this stage reigned, as I said, for just over 30 years. In his final years, he's said to have been marked by a morbid depression. He had been injured in a horse-related accident years before, And since 1514, he's said to have traveled with a coffin constantly. So he expected death. So what that means is that the temporal power structure, the Holy Roman Empire, it was now vamping up to elect a new emperor. Everyone expected he would die fairly soon. At this stage, there was no German prince who could have actually unified the empire without, you know, there being political backstabbing and unrest amongst the other princes. 
Now remember, every European prince at this stage is qualified to take this role, but the German princes were the electors, obviously with some exceptions. Maximilian had anointed his grandson, Charles, to become emperor, and he was most concerned at the stage with not letting the French king, Francis I, take the empire after his death, which was a very real possibility. Maximilian would end up dying in January 1519, so it pretty much happened in the middle of the shitstorm that was happening around Luther. The Pope, he wanted Charles to become the emperor because he didn't want a French king becoming the emperor of what it was effectively Germany. It would upset the balance of power. And perhaps also because Charles was very young, and a young man, I guess, can be impressed upon more easily, or so saith the older men. But to do this, to make sure that Charles could become emperor, the Pope needed the support of enough German prince electors, especially da, 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 Frederick III. So you can see how it all comes around, because the Pope needed Frederick at this time in these power games between the spiritual and the temporal realms. It gave Frederick the kind of breathing space he needed, and is simply one of those great accumulations of historical events and, and fluctuations that really managed to keep Martin Luther away from a very fiery stake. Finally, in August 1518, there was issued a papal bull addressing the issues that Luther had raised in his 95 Theses. So, that's nearly a year after he sent them off to Albert. Typically, you know, one strategy for the, an authority to maintain its authority or an establishment to stay the establishment is when alternative or radical or underground ideas come up against it, one strategy to survive that is to absorb those alternative or radical ideas. The papal bull, when it came out, it actually addressed many of the concerns that Luther had raised about the indulgences. It, it served to appease a lot of the things that he was railing against. And it has been argued that had they come out with it more quickly, the issue might have actually just been solved and you know swept over. And what a different world we would have. Instead, Europe would just continue to crack apart, despite the papal bull. A couple of things now started to happen. Maximilian died. The election... Uh, for a new emperor was coming about and so that was in full swing and so was the political maneuvering that went with it a guy called Miltitz was sent to Frederick's court to kind of curry favor with him on behalf of the Pope and uh, the reason I bring him up is because he traveled up to Saxony to be at Frederick's court and there are records of how he was in taverns and inns along the way and talking to everyday people and he said to have made mention that for every one person against Luther, there were three people for him. So the public support was starting to, to rise for Luther. Uh, his band of supporters also, they started to concentrate in, in various characters who would become very important co-workers in Luther's developing theology. Uh, different theologians and academics in Wittenberg coming together behind Luther helping to translate the Bible eventually, uh, helping to preach and disseminate the information, build a reformation. They were pretty much his lieutenants in the reformation. 
Luther was eventually challenged to a public debate by a man who would, uh, was actually his friend at the time, but would go very quickly to becoming a foe, and this guy was called John Eck. He had a, a, a quite a strong reputation as a formidable opponent, although he was known for the old, uh, what is it called, attacking the person rather than the argument. And the stage for this debate would be at the very conservative and prestigious University of Leipzig. Now, the, the ruler of Leipzig at the time, he was a duke. He actually, I think, had one of the best uh, appellations possible. He was called George the Bearded. And he was a temporal ruler. His, his territories, though, had a spiritual realm. It was the, uh, ruled on, by the Bishop of Leipzig. And um, the bishop, he actually banned Luther from attending and from speaking at the university. George and presumably his beard, overruled the bishop at this stage. And his quote is something of a classic. What he said was, quote, What good is a soldier if he cannot fight, a sheepdog if he may not bark, and a theologian if he may not debate? Better spend money to support old women who can knit than theologians who cannot discuss. End quote. To the disappointment of elderly knitters in Leipzig, George was not starting a new industry. He was showing how new age and renaissance he was actually also becoming. It's little moments like this that actually suggest Luther, he was more a product of his time than his time was a product of him. He simply had a theology that fit in with a time where people were starting to change ideas and take more humanistic and renaissance-based approaches. The debate ended up making Luther famous. He was smart enough to go toe-to-toe with Eck, even though Eck constantly challenged and, and attacked his character. And Luther was confident enough in his theology and his knowledge of scripture, so he defied Eck at every turn. One witness at the debate said, quote, Everyone chides with him for the fault of being a little too insolent in his reproaches and more caustic than is prudent for an innovator in religion, or becoming to a theologian, end quote. So he was pretty out there, and he was full guns blazing at this stage. Maybe he felt it was his only way. Remember, he had come a long way, and through this path that he'd been on since he was young, he'd faced much inner torment and a lot of despair to arrive at a theology that reconciled himself with God. He would not lay down and let them take it from him. Eck, at one stage during the debate, challenged, quote, Are you the only one who knows anything? Except for you, is the whole church in error? End quote. And Luther spoke back, quote, I will tell you straight what I think. I am a Christian theologian, and I am bound not only to assert, but to defend the truth with my blood and death. I want to believe freely and be a slave to no one, whether council, university, or pope. End quote. As we're getting closer to the great event that would be the Diet of Worms in 1521, where Luther would be officially proclaimed a heretic and excommunicated, he would start to relate more to a group of people called Hussites. He began to be entreated by Hussites, and they started to send him letters of support. Hussites were followers of a much earlier reformer called Jan Hus. I've really tried to stay away from talking about other major players in the Reformation, like Horst and John Wycliffe or Huldrych Zwingli or John Calvin. 
I've tried to keep this as the story of Luther's rebellion rather than the whole Reformation. But Hus, pretty much exactly a hundred years before Luther, he'd said things that were very similar to what Luther was saying now. He had been a Bohemian from what is now, you know, around the Czech Republic. And in 1415, he was burnt at the stake for saying things such as what Luther was saying now. Now, his followers had been burnt en masse, and they were still around and they were still enemies of the church. There was a stigma within the church of being a Hussite. Luther, by 1520, he had started saying things like, quote, We are all Hussites without knowing it. End quote. His resistance was spreading far and wide now. A former fellow student had uh, written to him from Rome, where he was in a monastery. And apparently Luther's works were already being smuggled and distributed amongst students in Rome, risking their lives, basically, under the nose and the shadow of the Vatican. The Diet of Worms, when it happened, it was in April 1521. And Luther, over days, was ordered to defend all of his work before an imperial council and the new young emperor, Charles V. Eventually, he threw out this defense. He divided his work into three categories. There were works that were received well by his enemies in the church, so he saw no reason to reject or recant them. There were books attacking the lies, the abuses, and the corruption of the church. And he felt by this stage he'd gone too far to be able to go back on his beloved congregation who had come to taking his teachings as fact. And then the last part was the personal abuse on individuals. And um, he felt if they could prove him wrong through scripture, then he would take it back. But essentially, he knew that they couldn't do that because he knew his scripture and he knew that he knew it better than they. Luther was in this up to his neck and he knew that also, there was a very low chance he would come away with his neck intact. After the Diet of Worms ended, Luther, he fled pretty quickly. He had to get out of there because it was obvious that he should be fearing for his life. It wasn't until about a month later that the Edict of Worms was actually produced. The imperial decision on Luther read, quote, we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare, either by words or deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic as he deserves. So the weight of both realms of authority was now clearly stacked against Luther. He left Worms well before the edict was written, as I said, and effectively he was actually kidnapped by his great protector, Frederick, on the way home. Frederick had him taken to a castle called the Wartburg Schloss, or the Wartburg Castle, and he would be kept there safely and secretly for nearly a year. And this is another sort of lucky thing for Luther. He had Frederick, and Frederick was willing to hide him in a castle. And during his time in this castle, he would produce a monumental amount of work. Uh, it would include a nearly finished translation of the New Testament into German. And that is what, of course, he would become forever known for. By the mid-1520s, Luther was back in Frederick's domain. He came back from Wartburg, and by this time, Reformation had really taken hold. Although Frederick was trying to suppress it or rein it in as much as he could, 
he supported this intelligentsia, and this intelligentsia around Luther, upon whom Frederick relied and, and who he supported, they saw Luther as the indisputable leader of a truly earth-shattering and godly movement. Charles V, the emperor, he actually proved to be pretty pretty smart and pretty deft at dealing with what were the biggest changes to come across Europe in a thousand years. The Edict of Worms, it would eventually be suspended not long after, and it would be reinstated at different times, but by now Luther was pretty much safe from Rome. He had the protection of Frederick, and Charles was distracted by many other things going on, and was willing to um, adapt his rule, even though he was, of course, a Catholic emperor. Public support grew, and in 1525, the first Lutheran state emerged. So that's only, not even 10 years after his 95 Theses. This was the uh, territories of the Teutonic uh, Knights, the Teutonic Order of Knights, uh, uh, which is basically Prussia, parts of Poland. And the leader of the Knights, uh, he consulted Luther, actually. He wanted to reform, and he consulted Luther, and Luther gave him advice uh, the leader was a, a spiritual leader, almost the equivalent of an archbishop, and Luther advised him to marry and make his lands secular and to make them hereditary. So this is a transition from spiritual power to temporal power, which is um, also something that the Protestant Reformation would show happening again and again. By the 1530s, there were other warring concerns for Luther. And there were other concerns for the effects that his resistance was having on Europe and the world around him. In fact, to this day, Europe has not stopped shaking from his figurative hammer blows. Now that's it for this episode, but in the next, I'm going to try and wrap it all up. I'm going to discuss some of those rippling effects that would occur.